we covered a lot of ground because we looked at Paul's discipling method. And someone said, well, why don't we continue? And I'm like, well, is it worth continuing the same theme? So what I want to look at this morning is what stops you being ineffective? Which we've, we've covered a model of discipleship. Um, I'm sure you can get the recordings for it. The notes are available. I mean, um, either the newsletter or get the um, presentation from the back. But the thing that really is on my heart is it's great talking about all these issues, but modern-day Christianity, and in that I mean across all denominations, whether you're in the faith movement, whether you're in um, the grace movement or the grace and faith movement or the word of faith movement that went before it or you're in the more traditional background of church, what we see today is an ineffective body of Christ. And what I'd like to address this morning is something that I probably talked about two years ago to you, but I actually think now is the more relevant time. And so what we're going to look at is something that keeps you awake at night. Now, some of you will sleep peacefully through the night. Some of you won't. Some of you, when anything traumatic happens in your life, you will find it difficult sleeping. We're going to sort out that this morning. It's something that we're going to pay attention to because if we get this right, you will be effective in the kingdom of God. Not only will you be effective in the kingdom, but your life will be far more satisfying. In fact, you will have joy unspeakable. I often don't see many Christians enjoying the gospel. And even when they say, yep, we come in and the worship, great. But joy is meant to continue. If we get this right in each life, you will have joy even when you are persecuted. Even when people hurl insults at you. You can smile and say, thank you very much. Or, if someone brings up the issues of the past. You know, one of the most greatest ways to make someone ineffective is to bring up their past. Have you noticed how in politics they do it? Yeah? Oh, well, so-and-so took drugs when they were at university. Well, so did 98% of the people that went into university. It was common to have drugs. But they bring it up to try and undermine them. I wonder if someone did that to you, what, how you would respond. Because if we really understand the gospel, the good news, the message, the nearly too good to be good news, or literally, I'd much prefer if we translate it in the way that it's used in classical Greek, the life-saving message. Because outside the New Testament, it wasn't really used much, the word gospel, or euangelion, as the Greek puts it. But when there was a major siege in Alexandria, when the message, where people were dropping dead in the street, now we haven't quite got to that, there might be a shortage of toilet rolls in your supermarkets because of all the propaganda and stuff. But in Alexandria at the time, people were dropping dead because there was no food. They were being laid siege to. And when the message that food and the siege had been broken and the city was safe, they used the word euangelion, the good news. But most of us, as Christians, we don't actually live that good news. You know, can you imagine if Paul, the Apostle Paul, came into church and... All you've heard was his past reputation. So, hey, this murderer who doesn't like Christians wants to come and preach on a Sunday morning. Oh, and by the way, he's got authority from the government to take anyone 
that upsets him and throws him into prison without reason or cause. And he wants to come and preach in church. I wonder how you feel on an emotional level. It's a bit kind of freaky when someone like that comes in. Well, you can imagine what happened in Jerusalem. When Paul came to Jerusalem and he came up after 14 years and the apostles were like, woohoo. And it took a guy who had a nickname called Barnabas to introduce him to the then apostles in Jerusalem and say, actually, he's okay. But can you imagine his reputation? And I wonder what people said. Well, we can actually read it because you find it in the book of Acts. When people said, yes, Paul, but... Because when he stood before the council and when he stood before Agrippa, he told his whole testimony. He said, how bad I am. But... And he used things like, I strive to have a good conscience before God and man. I think, what does that really mean? You know, we're in this kind of mode of church where we think, well, God's done everything for me, thank you. I don't have to do anything. Otherwise, of course, that becomes legalism. That becomes a work. And we're actually deceiving ourselves. Because Paul says, this one thing I work at, to have a clear conscience. And it's so difficult to pinpoint your conscience. You think about it. When we read in John 8, and Jesus was with the um, prostitute, and they were going to stone her. So they were literally had stones, and she would have been in a pit, probably about this deep, so she couldn't run away, with everyone standing around her, and they were picking up the stones... And then Jesus used a very simple phrase. He said, he that without sin cursed the first stone. And something convicted them. I'd love to say it's the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit was present. But scripture tells us their conscience convicted them. Why? Because they weren't as righteous as they thought. Even though they were Pharisees even though they did everything that they could, they knew that the standard that God had was so high that they didn't meet the criteria. That's why Paul in in Romans says, hey guys, we've all fallen short. We've all fallen short. So be slow in passing the judgment. But let's look at our conscience. I love the concept of the conscience. Because it's something that we can trace back in history. But the conscience is really difficult to pinpoint. It is definitely a function of the heart. And there's so much we can talk about the heart. Because the heart is a real you. Yeah, you may think that if you go and have your makeup and stuff and go through all that side, that becomes the real you, what you'll portray to the world. No, that's not the real you. Or you might say, hey, I've done my workout today. Notice I'm holding mine in. (laughs) I'm big, I'm strong, this is what I portray to... That's not the real you. That's your face. I like the Chinese way of saying it. That's your face. That's what you want people to see. But God doesn't see you through your face. Your, your mask that you put up. He doesn't see you like that, but he sees your heart. That's why Paul says, and we love 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, we are a new creation. Or is anyone in Christ, they are a new creation. We love that, don't we? And we concentrate so much on that. And then, of course, that becomes a judgment that we use when we judge other people. But we forget verse 16, which says, hey, We call no one according to the flesh. Even though once we knew Christ from that perspective, we know him no longer. So we call one another according to the Spirit. I wonder what you look like in the Spirit. 
It's quite interesting. Well, that's actually, see, and I did it in one of the newsletters on faith. Three things remain at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. And the most prominent, yeah, because I'm going to do my version, not the one that you kind of read. The most prominent one is love. Notice I didn't say the greatest. Because we often say, so all that counts is love. Rubbish. So if you were to describe your life right now according to those three attributes and those three only, now tell me how you look. Because they're the only three things that remain. Yeah, I can take you through hundreds of attributes. I'm righteous. I'm justified, same word, but from the Latin rendering. I'm made holy. I'm predestined to the image of Christ. They're all great statements, but they don't remain. What remains is faith, hope, and love. They are your characteristics. And the most important thing that you can understand is you will only increase in those three attributes if you have a pure conscience before God. Let's actually see how, how it's put. Um, I love this verse because it kind of does it. It's in um, it was 1 Peter, not 2 Peter. Let's have uh, Timothy. Let's pop over to 1 Timothy 5. I think it is. Yeah. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law. By the way, that's lifestyle, just in case you think it's the Old Testament. Of lifestyle, understanding neither what they say, nor the things which they affirm. So in other words, what Paul is actually saying is, Timothy's dealing with... 1 Timothy 1.5. There you go. You can put it up, but it doesn't matter. Um, What we see here is, Some are desiring to be teachers. But what they stand up and teach doesn't have any effect. There's no understanding with it. Have you ever met those teachers? You know, you can go through Bible college and you can go all the way through from one year to the next year to the next year to the next year. And some go through again. But there's no life change. Why? There's no understanding, comprehension. I'm doing a fascinating study about capacity. Now, I like it from an electrical viewpoint because I'm a trained engineer. And when we talk about capacity and large capacity, you pack so much into a small space, a bit like the TARDIS on Doctor Who. Lots inside, but not much on the outside. In, In like capacity... But what we talk about capacity in character and capacity in faith, hope and love means if I have someone with limited character capacity, I can't use them in some situations. Why? Because they don't have the capacity to be able to handle that situation. It will destroy them. You, you think about certain situations got two friends, just had a major argument. If you don't have the character capacity to handle it, you are going to be drawn in at an emotional level. You will make a situation worse. You will become part of the problem, not the solution. And believe me, I've seen it. We've seen it here in church. When we send elders or we send people out to pray, the situation got worse and people got upset. (coughs) I'm not mentioning anything. (laughs) Why? Because they don't have the character capacity in God to be able to operate. That's why we don't operate so much in the spiritual gifts 
Because actually, you can have all the gifts, but if you don't have the character, the capacity to be able to handle those gifts, you are going to be endanger individuals. And what you'd say to the world is, hey, look at us, we got this gift, and they look at you and say, you're out of your mind. You're just a troublemaker. You don't have the character. When Augustine came to England, according to Venerable Bede, I like, Venerable, I like saying that. <laughs> Venerable Bede. <laughs> He's a guy in about the 10th century that wrote the history of the English church. And he recalls that when Augustine came to England, King Ethelbert of the Kent, say that quick, <laughs> was not interested in Christianity because even though his wife was a Christian, the queen was a Christian, he wasn't interested. So Augustine set about doing what he knew best to do, worshipping God and teaching. It wasn't too long before King Ethelbert, I like saying that one, <laughs> looked at the quality of his life and said, I want what you got. I've become a Christian. See, the gifts are there to point to Christ, not to us. Miracles will happen because of what you do. But it's about developing the character inside. And that is so important. The first and prominent step is your conscience. We talk about things like being forgiven. What a great statement. And if I asked here, in church, all of you would probably turn to me and say, oh, I know I'm forgiven. Do you, when you're just at that twilight moment falling asleep, suddenly remember some of the things that you've done wrong and said wrong? And that keeps you awake? or you worry about it, or you had a situation that happened in your past and you constantly go back to it, that means your conscience has not been redeemed. And we'll do a little emotional exercise before we finish where we'll begin to address that. It's like we talked yesterday and I mentioned about... 1 John, and if I asked you what 1 John was about, you'll all go to 1 first, 1 John 1 9, and say that's the subject of 1 John. No, 1 John is about you having joy to the full extent. That's why John writes and says, I write this that you may have joy, not so that you can focus on your sin. And in fact, although it's a bit kind of, kind of people might read it wrongly, God's actually not interested in your sin. He's interested that you recognise that you were a sinner and you need a saviour. But if you magnify your sin above the cross of Jesus Christ, you are saying that you are proud. Because the death of Jesus forgave all sin for every individual for the whole of time itself. All you have to do is accept it. But unfortunately, most of us as Christians, we will say with words that we accept it, but practically we don't live it. Because we decide that our sin is so great that God actually can't forgive it. Or more importantly, he can't forgive us. That's a lie. See? When you work at your conscience, what you were doing is you were taking away all the things in your heart that stops it being effective. You'll all remember the parable of the sower. I love that concept. First three types of ground is what you remove from your heart until you have good seed, the word of God, producing a fruit and a harvest. Most Christians don't have harvest in their lives. They get maybe past stage one and get past the pavement or the road or the word sawdos. They might get past the stony ground. 
they might even get as far as the weeds. But unless you clear your conscience, you will never ever pull up those weeds. In fact, you promote the weeds because they make you look pious. Oh, sorry, sorry, put that in a different context. Makes you look holy. It does. That's how Christianity, or what most people understand as Christianity. And in fact, what people do is, they go to the point where they think, I'm bearing fruit, and actually, in their heart, they still have the weeds choking so they never produce the fruit. You were created in Christ Jesus to be fruit-bearing. But if you're honest, in most churches, I'm not saying this one, I said most, <coughs> there's probably only one or two people, and they're expected to be the pastor, by the way, <laughs> that actually bears fruit. See, we talked yesterday about the interface to our community. And it's a complex interface. There isn't a rule which says you must do this and this and this and this. But when you have fruit, then that fruit is ready to go. Sometimes we use it in terms of healing. If you have a harvest of fruit, you will find that it's easy to get people healed. And then people say, oh no, I just got it by authority. Yeah, and you pray for them, and do they get healed? You can see by the number of testimonies. <laughs> see, our conscience is so important. The conscience of a Christian. And as Paul put it, here, the command, the lifestyle, is love from a pure heart. Love is a heart issue. And we could talk more about the pureness of our hearts because it means that we need to examine our motives. See, we can say, yep, I'm forgiven, but if our motives aren't there, but I'm going to leave that one, from a good conscience, Oh, to have a good conscience. See, think for a minute. If someone was to put your life story on the screen, the worst thing that you've ever done, what's your response? Some of you might think, I'm getting out of here quick, just in case I've got it on the back on a... I did, I did use a presentation yesterday. <laughs> yeah? Or would you turn around and say, yes, but thank you, Jesus, I will, I'm forgiven. And thank you for reminding me that I am forgiven. Do you see the power? See, Paul could say clearly, yes, I was someone who persecuted the church. I killed Christians. But thank you, Jesus, I have a clear conscience. He goes further in nine and actually says, the Holy Spirit bears witness. Fascinating. Oh, we could part there for a while when he's talking about his longing to see Israel saved. But a clear conscience. Many people want to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. But because of the state of our hearts, it's full of noise. Well, I'm not sure if the Holy Spirit is saying that. I am well, I'm all. Uh. And that noise comes because our conscience aren't clear. Because if we had clear consciences, if we really understood what it was to be forgiven, to the point that if someone brings up the worst thing that I've done, I can turn around and say, thank you for reminding me of the grace of God in my life. But because we live in fear, that then becomes a deep issue that we choose to magnify beyond the cross of Christ. 
I, I loved the communion service, the very traditional one part. It's brilliant because there is something called the absolution. You know, it's absolute. Just That's what it means. It's just the Latin bit on the end. Absolute. And it's absolute forgiveness. The presbyter or the highest office that's available, which is by the decision of the church, either bishop or um, presbyter comes from the Greek for priest, not someone that stands between you and God, but someone to proclaim the truth. Or even a deacon. And they will turn around and say, you are forgiven. And people think at that moment that they're forgiven. No, they're not. It's the statement of the truth that Christ took all sin. Do you accept it? And if so, then there's a change in our lives. A change that says, yeah, I recognize I'm not up to God's standards. And God says, hey, that's fine. I've, t- I've done all those bits in Jesus for you. So now, so now, I'm forgiven. I'm set free. And we often think that actually getting to the point of righteousness by faith. And everyone goes, I've arrived. That's great, but that's where we start. Ministry begins when we understand that we are righteous in God. The supernatural ability to walk into the very presence of God the Father with no sense of guilt. Yes, we're now guiltless. No sense of shame. That means that if you find out the worst thing I've ever done, which I've probably forgotten about, and you proclaimed it from the rooftops, I have to respond a certain way. Thank you for reminding me of God's grace in my life. Thank you for reminding me that God loved me so much that, yes, I should have died because of my sin. My sin. But Jesus chose to die for me. I often ask the question, and it's a fascinating study to do if you get time. Whose cross did Jesus die on? Someone said it over here. Mine. Unless you make it personal, it has no power. Unless you make it real. Jesus died on my cross. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say take up Jackie's or Karen's or Stella's cross. I'm not responsible for them. I'm responsible for me. Why? Because in taking up my cross, Jesus died on my cross. That I'm free. That I can now live in the freedom, the joy, the peace. That no matter what people say to me, no matter what disaster befalls me, whether it's a virus, whether it's a common cold, car accident, been stuck in water, as we were a few weeks ago. You met John yesterday, pushing him out in his car. That was quite fun. I did have cold feet. The water was cold. (coughs) Just so you know. Guess what? Nothing changes. My positional truth in God. He still loves me. As though I'm the only one on the face of the earth. To know the joy and the peace. It's such an incredible truth. But that's having our clear conscience. Paul goes on on to say in 1 Timothy. And he talks about a battle in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. I charge, or this charge, I commit to you, son Timothy. So it's written to Timothy, but because it's written to Timothy in this style, we can apply it to us. According to the prophecy previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare or strategy. The word warfare here is the word strategios, where we get our word strategy from. (coughs) Which is a fascinating concept. Most people don't have a strategy. Can I encourage you to engage your imagination? 
Hope actually is linked directly to your imagination. Think about that for a second. What remains? Hope. Your imagination. When you have bad memories coming into your thinking, now use your imagination. How are you going to respond? Are you going to whimper and say, oh, I'm defeated, I can't do this? Or are you going to turn around to say, thank you for reminding me of God's grace in my life? As soon as you begin to do that, especially as you go to sleep, you will begin to sleep peacefully. And if you have nightmares about things that you've done in the past, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you that I am an object of your glory. We talked about Hebrews being the author and perfecter. Jesus, for we see Jesus, the author, the craftsman. Did you realize that as you became a Christian here, you then become the raw material for God to craft you into his glory? That's why Ephesians 2.10 puts it like this. You are God's workmanship, or let's put it into the actual word poetic. You are God's poem that he's constantly writing. Or as um, I can't think which version it is, one version put it, you are God's masterpiece. Can't be translated that way. It's the same word that used at creation, and God looked at creation and used the Hebrew tub, which is perfect, good. Absolutely nothing impure. That's where God's crafting our lives. But if you wish to hang on to your past, if you wish to hang on to a corrupt conscience, well, we're told here what happens. Have the fight. Having faith, warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which having rejected concerning the faith, or some have rejected, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, has suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. <coughs> we won't get on to church discipline. Someone did ask me whether I w- we would. <coughs> but handing someone over to Satan, why not? What does it mean? It means their consciences are corrupt and that when people bring up their past, they react badly and get upset and angry. Because their conscience will constantly point a finger at how bad they are. We could get onto a whole issue. Do you want the reference again? Okay. It's a principle that is done in church discipline, which I'm not really going to cover too much. But if you hand someone over to Satan, basically all the benefits that you normally would pray for someone, they don't get. Um, We see it a couple of times in Scripture, and it's basically so that they get saved, so their life gets so, if you like, ripped apart that they come back to Christ or hopefully repent. Um, I would say that if you let Caris and said three, but they don't think they do tape said three anymore where Andrew did teach on it. Um, he said three, but I'm not sure it's available anymore. Either way, it's irrelevant. But it's a way of doing church discipline. That's why the worst thing you can do, which Christians do it all the time, the greatest church discipline that the church can dish out is saying that you can't attend church. And yet a lot of Christians do it themselves. <laughs> Anyone missed that one? The greatest discipline that can be put on someone is that they cannot attend church. Okay? Yet most Christians see that as an option. Well, I'm too tired to go. You know, you've got your own excuses. I'm not going to put... I don't need to make excuses for you. (laughs) But you use it, and yet it's the greatest discipline. Why? Because it doesn't give you a clear conscience. You choose to punish yourself. You were created, when you become a Christian, 
You are part of God's body on earth, the church. Whichever expression that church is. Whether it's a house church. Whether it's a large, I know, flagship church. Or any combination in between. Yes, church will always have problems. But that's what the people of God are good at sorting out. Developing character. Supporting one another. And what here with these guys, Paul is saying is, hey, put them out of fellowship. Hand them to Satan. Why? Because what will happen is, they don't get what fellowship gives them. Only church can do that. No power organisation can. Yeah? Don't say Bible college is church. It's not. Church is God's way of saying, this is my body, with every different expression. Whether you go through the ecclesiastical, whether they have set patterns, whether it's an expression like we have here where we're free, or have a different freedom, I'll put it that way. Doesn't matter. God's mechanism on earth for believers is the local church. Whichever expression. That's why it gets so exciting. Sometimes I have to put my dog collar on. I actually went with a friend to um, oh, work and pensions in Wolverhampton. And I had to put my dog collar on. <coughs> why? Because it has a status. Yeah? Some people say, well, when you preach, you need that one. No, you don't. Ripped jeans are fine. I've only got one little one. <laughs> I, I, I refuse to pay extra to have the holes. Just so you know. <laughs> but if you want to pay extra for the holes, you can. <laughs> I don't mind. But, but you see, our expression of church is important. Having a clear conscience. Work at your conscience. Can I encourage you? We'll, we'll do it in a bit. We'll do a little exercise. Well, I'll get you to close your eyes. And what we'll do is, we'll get you to think about the thing that keeps you, if you like, in bondage. It could be a situation like a divorce. It could be a situation where someone has abused you. could be rape. could be all sorts of different issues. I remember dealing with one person that was raped on a tombstone. And seeing them set free was an amazing statement. But it took time for them to get to the point where they could say clearly, that person is forgiven. And it took a long time. And I remember the whole thing started when I turned around to them and said, hey, every time I'm praying, I just see a gravestone. Does that mean anything to you? A tombstone, you know the big one with a big bit and a bit up? And they said to me, how, what, no, no. But then eventually we came back and she said, yes. And so with a friend, we prayed for her. And through time, we got her to the place where she could say, I forgive the group that did that to me. And you know, there was such freedom. Such joy became. Because no longer are we held captive, but we are set free. And people think, hey, that shouldn't matter. Yes, it does matter. Having a clear conscience is absolutely vital for you to move forward. Otherwise, you shipwreck your soul, is what Paul says. That's why as Christians we become ineffective when we pray for the sick. We don't see the sick healed. Why? Because our heart still has mega jagged rocks hiding in it. Or if you get to the final stage, just the worries and cares of the world. What's anyone going to think about if I turn around and say, I've been abused? And they build up a whole infrastructure of negativity. We are God's demonstration of his grace. 
It doesn't disqualify you. You are the object of God's love. That Christ died in your place so that you could be free. That's why Paul says, I strive. That's an incredibly strong word. You know, if I use that in some places, say, I'm striving. That John, you shouldn't work in anything in God. Jesus has done it all. I'm sorry. It's all about grace, yeah. Hang on a minute. Yeah, I agree. It's all about grace. But hang on a minute. I've got my heart to deal with. I've got to progress through my heart. And I've got to be honest with my heart. Not pretend. And being honest in my heart says, yeah, I do have some issues. Yeah, this is too much. My capacity isn't big enough for this yet. You don't often hear people say that, but did you realise in leadership, the number one thing that causes leaders to fall is that they don't have the capacity to do the job that they're doing. Bear that in mind. Help increasing one another's capacity. That's part of what we saw yesterday when we looked at vision as a point 10 of Paul's discipleship. Paul had a vision for every single member of the Thessalonica church on where they would go. We saw it in Philippians 1, 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in the depths and knowledge of insight or with full discernment, that you may come and be presented pure and holy before the Lord. Can you imagine that? Hey, no, we don't want it all sorted when you die. You know, it will get sorted, but we want to get it sorted now so you become effective. So that when you go and stand before God, God says, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. And Jesus will stand in front of the Father. And we did talk a little bit about Judgment Day. And, he's, and Jesus will say, what do you think of my masterpiece? Yes, that's you. Just put yourself in there. You're God's masterpiece. You're God's demonstration of his grace to the world. That's why Titus, again in the pastoral epistles, too. For the grace of God has appeared to all men. That word appear literally means it's a lighthouse to the whole of mankind. Did you realise that God's grace in your life is a lighthouse to the world? Yes, then grace teaches us to be in the state of already having said no, the outworking of grace in the believer's life. Grace isn't just for salvation, it's God's divine enablement that gives you incredible capacity to handle things. So our conscience. Our conscience is that which is programmable. It's our natural reaction to situations. So if it's programmable, how do we change it? Well, that's why Paul said, I strive. I work at it. You know, you think, Paul, 14 years in the desert, working through issues, I reckon Paul spent ages meditating and then being reminded of the words that Jesus spoke to him. It's hard for you to kick against the point or the prick. Or and, and that actually analogy is something phenomenal. Here's Paul from his pharisaical background wanting to make big of his religious etiquette and how brilliant he's been and how much fervor he had in persecuting the church thinking it was evil and then having it all twisted around it's a bit like being anyone been in a car on a hot day yeah and a wasp comes in but it's a big one well that point called the sting is your sin and every time that wasp stings you, it reminds you of the things you've done wrong and how bad you are. And the analogy that Jesus is giving Paul is, as it comes straight for your neck and you're driving and you're at a difficult junction so you can't look at it, Jesus says, I take the sting. I take the sting. Every time it comes, I take the sting. The sting of sin. I take it so that you don't have the poison.
That's what Jesus did. That we're now free. So let's do some exercises. <laughs> okay, make sure you're awake. <laughs> yep, give yourself a tap or a slap. <laughs> Good. Everyone's awake. Okay, now close your eyes. Some of you, this will just be, in, if you like, mental ascent. That's fine. But I now want you to think about the worst thing that fills your thinking. What do you think most about in your past? Yeah? What are you most ashamed about? I'm not going to ask you to tell us. But now we're going to pray a prayer. And it goes like this. Father, I thank you for Jesus. And I give you my life. I give you all my failings. I give you the time I was abused. I give you the time I did wrong. And I lay it as an offering at your feet. And Father, this time, I receive from you the forgiveness that only Jesus can give me. Now allow the Holy Spirit to work because he's working in your life. He will begin to purge your confidence from this time on. Setting you free. That's it. Let the Holy Spirit begin to work with you. Some of you may have emotional things that will you go through. You may not have them now. You may have them in the next few days or weeks. But allow the Holy Spirit to work through you and take away the pain. He will bring you to a place where you can remember the times when you were hurt, the times you were abused, the times you hurt people even deliberately. And he will take the sting out of your life. That it becomes a testimony of God's goodness. The times where you've undermined people, the times you haven't been honest. Allow the Holy Spirit now to work with you. And if you can pray in tongues, pray in tongues quietly and let the Holy Spirit begin to work. You can pray in English as well, that's fine. But allow the Holy Spirit to minister. Surrender your thoughts. And if you need to, in your mind, forgive people, forgive them. need to say it quietly out loud I forgive and then name the person that's fine you can do that don't have to truth is I've already forgiven Thank you, Holy Spirit.
Holy Spirit, now begin to let your joy, the joy of forgiven by Jesus, begin to flow into our lives right now. I thank you for the power of your forgiveness. Let that joy come, the unspeakable joy. Begin to flow into our lives. And Father, let our conscience be a witness to the goodness of our God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Now, some of you, you stay with the Holy Spirit as he works with you. Others of you, just begin to thank God for what he's done in your life. And if you're battling over things, that's fine, you can park it up. And come back to it and work with the Holy Spirit. So that you become a testimony of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Because he didn't stay on your cross. He took all your sin, all your shame, every part of your inadequacy, he took to hell and left it there. Then rose again and said, hey, now walk in the newness of life. So begin to give thanks. Because as a Christian, we are the most grateful people on the face of the earth. Let healing flow. Your body is no longer your own. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 